So we're turning our attention to God's word. Philippians chapter 2, if you are there already, we are going to jump around a little bit, but that's going to be our majority text today. We're going to spend most of our time. So I may not have to convince you about this one, but I want to spend a moment thinking about why is humility important? All right, have you ever thought about this? Have you ever thought about why is the character trait of humility important? Now, perhaps you've reflected on that, and maybe I don't have to convince you that humility is important. I would say probably humility is one of those things we all sort of ascribe to the reality. Yes, it's important, but then how hard we work to get it may be a different story because we recognize that humility is not easy. Yes, would you agree? It's not, it comes, it's, it's hard earned, to be honest. Humility is, and it usually comes through difficult circumstances. And so humility is one of those things we go, yes, it's incredibly valuable, but it can be challenging to attain. And how, how rigorously do I really want to pursue humility? Well, let me give you a metaphor to kind of think about the importance of humility. And the metaphor is this. Think of relationships like a house. Okay, if you think of every relationship, whether it be a marriage, whether it be a friendship, whether it be a a father-son, mother-daughter type of relationship, if you can view relationships as being kind of like a house, and here's what I mean by that, when we use this metaphor, right, that good ones tend to provide warmth and light and shelter, and broken ones tend to do just the opposite, right? Broken ones tend to do just the opposite, and like houses, relationships have different rooms or places that are to be explored. Like think of the Biltmore Mansion. Anybody been to the Biltmore Mansion down in Asheville, North Carolina? It's massive, right? With room after room after room after room to explore, right? With all these sort of different elements. I mean, you could spend a month in the Biltmore Mansion and probably still be uncovering new things. And relationships are like that, right? You uncover new rooms all the time in relationships, things you didn't know about before. Years and years down the road, you're like, I never knew that was that, was, that existed, and I want to explore that part of a relationship. Now, here's why I would argue then humility is so important, because humility is kind of like a master key that opens the door to every part of a relationship. I mean, think about this for a moment, right? If a door to a relationship is locked, let's say the door of forgiveness is locked in this house, and it's really hard to get into that door, what will open it up? Humility. Humility unlocks the door. It makes us willing to forgive, and it makes us willing to acknowledge we need to be forgiven. And until you have humility, that door stays closed. But when humility comes into a relationship, it tends to unlock the door to forgiveness. Or self-sacrifice. Humility unlocks the door to self-sacrifice in a relationship. Because when we count others more important than ourselves, we're willing to sacrifice our time and our energy and our skills and our, our goods so that others would have what they need rather than seeking what we need first. Humility unlocks the door. It's like the master key that unlocks the door to the room of listening. Somebody, wives out there, say, come on. Right? Where we say, I need need you to listen. Well, guess what? You don't really listen until you think the person talking has something important to say. And when you think they have something important to say, that's a recognition that perhaps what they have to say might be even more important than what I have to say. And I'm actually going to listen. I'm not just going to wait for my turn to talk. There is a difference between those two things in a conversation, right? So humility unlocks the door in the house of a relationship to that. It unlocks the door to assuming the best. It just unlocks door after door after door in a relationship. All the things that you need to open up in this house that is the relationship with your son or daughter, with your friend, with your mother, with your father, with your spouse. It's humility that unlocks those doors. Now, 
We've been in this series on the incarnation and thinking about Jesus' first coming in comparison to his last coming. You might be thinking, well, what does, what does humility have to do with that? Well, the aspect of the incarnation that I want us to think about today for a little bit of time together has a unique ability to, to, to grant you humility. If you will take up what we will learn about Jesus today, ponder it, meditate upon it, think about it, invite Christ in who he is in this incarnate state to come in and teach you about this, it will have a unique power to bring about humility in you. And, and I don't just mean because you ponder some things mentally and then it sort of makes its way down into your heart. I do think that that happens. That is a pathway that works. But also because when you see Christ for who he really is, when we really examine Christ, incarnate second person of the Trinity, it can't help but have a, a visceral and emotional effect upon us. That we look on him, you know, we just sang that we'll see his face one day. Have you ever thought, First John chapter three, right, tells us when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. Do you spend your days longing to see Jesus as he is? Because that's the thing that transforms you. That's the thing that transforms you. When you go to prayer in the morning, you should go to prayer longing to see the face of Jesus. And knowing that one day you will if you're in Christ. He will come back and you will see him in all of his glory and splendor just as he is. You won't have to imagine anymore what you think he's like. You won't have to ponder. You won't just take words Empowered by the Holy Spirit, yes, in the scriptures, and ponder those and let them root deep in your heart and then, and then you know, set your mind upon him. There's power in that. But one day, he's gonna come back and we're gonna see him. And I hope that you are spending your life practicing for that day. I hope that you're spending your life setting your mind on the person of Christ and going, oh, I wanna see you more than I want a spouse. And I want to see you and be with you more than I want money. And I want to see you and I want to be with you more than I want to see my kids grow up and have grandkids. And I want to see you and I want to be with you more than I want success in my career. I want to see you and I want to be with you more than I want anything in the world. And the good news of the incarnation is that Jesus has come to us and he will come again. He has promised and we know all of his promises he keeps because he's faithful. So as we think about the incarnation today, we're going to compare his last coming, when he will come again for us, and contrast that with what it was like in his first coming. And we're going to look at the, the disparity or the difference between his weakness and his power. His weakness and his power. That's what I'd like us to think about today. And in particular, here's the challenge. I'll just kind of front load it for you. I, I, I'm gonna challenge you to take up the truth you're gonna hear today from God's word so that you might act in greater humility towards those around you. And as the Christmas season is upon us and many of us are gonna be around our families, I challenge you to think specifically about the member of your family that you need to show greater humility towards. The one that... You know the relationship's a little fractured, it's strained, you're gonna be with that person. Maybe it's the crazy uncle, I don't know. But whoever it is, how is God calling you to serve them, to sacrifice for them, to listen to them? I promise you, that relationship has a door that needs to be unlocked and whatever that door is, humility can unlock it. Humility can unlock it, but you know what won't? Arrogance. Indifference, 
None of that, none of those doors to what we need in this house that is the relationship with this family member, none of them will get unlocked until humility takes hold of us. Fair enough? All right, awesome. So I just, that's the conclusion. Now I just gotta do the middle part, all right? All right, so here's our proposition. Here's the big idea, right? As we're contrasting Jesus' first coming and his last. For Jesus, the incarnation, for the second person of the Trinity, the Son, to become human, for the, the incarnation then, meant for Jesus taking up weakness in spite of possessing all power. It meant taking up weakness in spite of possessing all power. Now let me make an important point here that is not just a a neat little theological tidy thing that we need to kind of have in our minds, but something that's deeply important to remember. When Jesus took up weakness, when he became human and took up weakness, he did not lay down one shred of his power. He never ceased to be omnipotent or all-powerful when he became human. He took up weakness but he did not lay down power. Now let me explain why that's important. You know, next week we're going to talk about uh, we're going to talk about how he laid down worship in order to take up rejection when he became human, and that's something we can say that he laid down worship for a time from human beings to take up rejection when he became human because we're not talking about an attribute when we talk about the worship that he deserves. We're talking about a response that people should give. And so he laid down that response that he deserved worship to take up a response he did not deserve, which was rejection. And so it's appropriate for us to say he laid something down in order to take something else up But when we talk about the incarnation, one of the most important things to remember, church, is that the scriptures do not teach that Jesus became less divine in any way, shape, or form when he lived on the earth. And he did not rid himself of any divine attribute while he lived on the earth. As baffling as this may be, and it is a mystery how these things coexist, but as difficult as it may be for us to ponder, Jesus was completely divine and let go or laid down none of the attributes of deity, but took up all of the attributes of humanity, every single one of them. And that is astounding. When we talk about the incarnation, when we talk about Jesus being fully God and fully man, we tend to talk about three things. So I'll put them up here for you. Uh, These are similar to how we talk when we talk about the Trinity. I think we have a slide with it, right, guys? So we talk about Three things when we talk about what does it mean that we say Jesus was fully God and fully man. Well, we say one, he was one person, which means he wasn't two different people, right? He wasn't a divine person and he wasn't a human person, somehow different people. He was one person, Jesus, that we interacted with, that people interacted with and knew and talked to and worshiped. Yes, his disciples worshiped, right? But then the second thing we say, that one person had two distinct natures, a human nature and a divine nature. Both those coexisted within Jesus at all times. And then the last statement that we need to make sure to include is that those natures are inseparable. Now the last one is important because one of the errors that has been in the history of the church is this idea, well, Jesus was one person, but he just had these two natures and they were really separate from one another. We always say those natures were distinct, but also cannot be separated. Jesus will forever be fully human. Did you know that? He has a body right now. Once he took up humanity, this is astounding because let's be honest, if any of us had been the savior of the world, 
wouldn't we have said, okay, I'll take up humanity, this dingy thing, for a little while, but then I'm not keeping it. I don't, this is the fruitcake of gifts, okay? Like, <laughs> like yeah, I, I'll take it, but then I'm letting it go when we're done with this whole cross and resurrection thing, right? Now, I know I'm being a little silly here, right? But Jesus said, no, I'm taking up humanity and I'm redeeming it to make it what it was always supposed to be and I'm keeping it forever. So, you know, in the metaphor, he transforms fruitcake into the brand new Lexus or whatever it is, right? He, he, he makes it the great gift. He takes it up and he says, now it's mine and it's mine forever and always as it was supposed to be. When he returns, he will return still fully human, fully divine, two distinct natures, one person, inseparable are those natures. Church, are you with me? Deeply important that you understand that we say he kept all his power, kept it all, while also taking up weakness. Now, this is a, a phrase that often gets used when we think about who Jesus was in the union of these two natures. We say, remaining what he was, he became what he was not. Remaining what he was, he became what he was not. Perhaps we can, here's an imperfect metaphor, but we can think about it this way. When a father wrestles with his son, when you think about weakness and power, right? And the father lets his little son win, right? The father has not ceased to be powerful. He's still every bit as powerful as he was, but he's allowed the son to win. He's taken up weakness so that his son can win the wrestling match, Right? So he's remained what he was. He has not laid down his power. He's still more powerful than the son. We'll assume this is like a four-year-old, right? Because we all know the boys pass this at some point, right? But he's laid down, right? He's kept his power, but he's, he has taken up weakness. Now, of course, the imperfection of that metaphor is that the father is only pretending to be weak. He's not truly weak. But when Jesus took up humanity, he truly took up humanity, and all the weakness of humanity while maintaining the power of divinity. Now, I know that I see some of the looks on your faces like, huh, yes, exactly. He is a grand mystery, our Savior, in his personhood. Oh, beyond us. And stunning in nature. So, how can Jesus become weak and yet at the same time possess all power well, the answer is the two natures of Jesus. That's what makes this possible. In his humanity, he took up weakness. In his divinity, he remained powerful. This is why the two natures, eternally, uh, sorry, um, eternal future-wise, inseparable, it's why those two natures are so profoundly powerful because a divine being can't die. But in his humanity, he can die. And so Jesus can't take up weakness unless he has a human nature completely and fully, right? But he maintains power and then he maintains his divinity. Okay, so let's look then just at two implications of this or two aspects of how did Jesus take up weakness while still remaining omnipotent, still remaining all-powerful. The first aspect, and I think it's so stunning to see these two things, but the first one is this. Jesus gave life to everything, but he took up the weakness of death. Jesus, the one who gave life to everything, took up in his humanity the weakness of death. See, one aspect of weakness that Jesus took up in becoming human was becoming vulnerable, vulnerable all the way to death. 
And as we said, his divine nature cannot die, but in taking on a human nature, he became vulnerable to death. So now, I told you to turn to Philippians chapter 2. Let's look at that together and see what we find there. We're just going to look at verses 6 through 8. Paul's imploring the Philippians to, guess what? Humility. And he's saying to them, how do you have it? How can you count others more important than yourselves? How can you take up this mind that you need to have that is humility? And no surprise, he points to Jesus. And in verse six, he says this. Who though, talking about Jesus, he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now let me point out a couple things there because some of the language in the English is a bit confusing and sometimes you think, what does it mean that he emptied himself? What, what does that mean? When it says he had the form of God, we hear that word form and we think, well, does that mean that he kind of looked like God on the outside but he wasn't really God? So let me explain a couple things. When we see that word both having the form of, hum- of God and the form of a servant, you found that on both sides of it, right? That word form in the original language actually means the exact likeness of the exact nature of. So form is a bit of a, an odd translation there, but when you see it, what it means is when it says he was in the form of God, it doesn't mean he kind of looked like God but really wasn't deep down. Instead, what that means is he had the exact imprint of the nature of God. That's what that word means. So that's what form, being in the form of God, possessing the exact nature of God. Then it said he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. What that word means is he didn't consider something to be clung to for his advantage. In other words, he wasn't going to, this passage really boils down to saying that Jesus, while maintaining his divinity, not laying it down, chose to lay down the rights and privileges of being divine. He chose to lay down the rights and privileges of being divine in order to take up the humanity and the cost of that humanity that he had. So then we find this word, emptied himself. And this has been a theological debate down through ages and ages. But this word, emptied himself, doesn't mean that he stopped being divine. It means that he, as I just said, it means that he got rid of the rights and privileges of being divine. And we know that because of the next phrase. After it says, in verse 7, made himself nothing or emptied himself, some translations say. Then it says how he did it. How did he do that? Made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. In other words, what Paul has just said is, how did he empty himself, or how did he make himself nothing? By being born, by becoming human. That for him was a lowering, That was a taking on of humanity, not when it says the form of a servant, remember, the exact likeness, the exact nature of a servant. In other words, what Paul is affirming is that he was in the exact nature of God and he took on the exact nature of a human being, of a servant, by being born. So in other words, what Paul is trying to tell us is not that Jesus in any way ceased to be God when he became human, but rather that he took up full humanity and laid down the rights and privileges of being divine. Are, are you with me so far? Okay, awesome. Fantastic. So that's what Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 through 8 gets at. And then it goes even further, having the exact nature of a human and being born in human likeness, what did he do? He took up the weakness of death on a cross, the weakness of dying. 
So we see the absolute importance of Jesus becoming human. It enabled him to experience ultimate weakness, which is what? Death. In becoming human, the incarnate second person of the Trinity took up the weakness of being able to die where he didn't previously possess that. Now, that perhaps is astounding enough, but now let's compare it. We could go back to all these places, Old Testament, New Testament, where we would look, you know, places like John chapter one, right? Through him, all things were created. Remember John chapter one, verse three? And not anything was created that was created, John told us. In other words, like if it exists, who made it? He made it, right? The stamp made in the USA or made in China or made in India or whatever that you find on the bottom of your goods. That everything that exists really should have a stamp on it that says made by Jesus, right? Like I made it all. It all exists because of me. That's what John is telling us. But we don't just wanna look at sort of those texts like in the Gospels or perhaps Old Testament where we see, you know, uh, God making man in his image and and speaking as the triune God. So clearly Jesus is there. We wanna look at his second coming to see it because that's kind of the contrast that we're doing. So Revelation chapter 22, verse 13. Revelation chapter 22, verse 13. I'm gonna flip there. You can flip there with me. Now this phrase occurs numerous times in the book of Revelation. Jesus identifies himself this way a couple of different times, but this is the last time. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 13, new heavens and new earth have been ushered in like his second coming has come to its culmination. And in verse 13, he says this, speaking to John, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last the beginning and the end. Okay, so three phrases there. Alpha, omega, first and last, beginning and end. What do you think Jesus is trying to get at by identifying himself that way three different times throughout the book of Revelation? This is his most common identifier for us. So he's trying to get something across to us. You read the book of Revelation in one sitting, you're gonna find that you're gonna go, he keeps coming back to this. He keeps saying this. What's What's he want me to learn from this? Well, clearly what he's saying is, I'm the one that began everything and I'm the one that everything has been moving towards, and I'm now the culmination or the end of everything. I'm the purpose that everything has been moving towards. My worship, my adoration, my exaltation, the redemptive work that I do, that's what this has all been about. Every single moment of human history has really been about me bringing a work of redemption that no one else can do but me. I began it, and I will end it, right? Some of you maybe had a parent said, you know, I brought you in this world, I'll take you out, right? In a, in a less than sanctified moment. But the point being, right, like, I am the beginning and I am the end. Now, in his second coming, in his last coming, Jesus is trying to make apparent to us that he is the one who's created everything. All things exist because he made them. And he makes a point to point back to that reality even at the end. Not just to say, I'm the one that is the end of all things, but I'm the one who was the beginning as well. I'm the creator. Now think about how astounding it is. It's astounding enough to say that God took on humanity and then he took on death. For the divine to die clearly is a profound mystery 
and we understand we need the full human nature of Jesus in order for that to occur. So the incarnation becomes this deeply important thing whereby we see Jesus taking up humanity completely. But now I want you to ponder that the one who subjected himself to death is the one who is the author of life. He made everything. He's the reason that everything that exists exists and he's allowing himself to die and laying down his life. That, for me, I should say, is penetrating. Because it's one of the chief marks of his power and authority that Jesus is the creator. And yet we see the one who created stars and galaxies and grass and trees and every living creature that exists. From nothing, by the way. He made them from nothing. Not from raw material. Just from pure nothingness he brought something out of uncreation he created just simply by the power of his word we can't fathom that kind of power how can that being die because he took up weakness by becoming human the second thing that we see that I want us to consider as we journey towards humility I pray is that Jesus doesn't just create all life and then come, become subject to death in his incarnation, but that in his incarnation, Jesus is the one who sustains, doesn't just create all life, but sustains all life. And the one who sustains all life actually took up the weakness of dependence. Now, here's what I mean when I say dependence. Uh, when I mean, what I mean when I say dependence is that he actually became dependent upon things for his survival, for his existence. He needed to eat food. He needed to be clothed. He needed shelter. He became one who, he didn't just, and by the way, didn't just come as a fully formed adult, but came as what? Came as a baby. The most vulnerable and weak of all humans. Completely dependent. I mean, in every way. He had to be fed and changed and clothed and wrapped in swaddling clothes. We find this in Luke chapter 2, verse 7, when we hear the, the words about his birth. And she gave birth, speaking of Mary, to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger. Why does a mom wrap her baby in swaddling cloths? Because she needs to keep him warm. She needs to take care of him. And then she needs to nurse him and feed him and protect him and make sure that no one gets to him and watch over him. You know, and make sure he doesn't go running out in the street where he might get hit by an animal who's coming down the road, right? <laughs> Didn't actually mean that to be funny, just historically accurate. You get what I'm saying, right? Think about the dependence. Now, ponder this for a second. Listen to Colossians chapter one. Colossians chapter one. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In other words, what we hear there is that Jesus is the one who causes everything that exists to continue existing. He didn't just make it, he continues to allow it to draw breath, to have animation, to have life force. Now, we said Jesus in becoming human did not become less divine. The baby in the manger was sustaining the life of galaxies while he laid there. He laid there helpless and vulnerable in his humanity and he had not laid down one shred of his divine omnipotence and the galaxies and the stars hung in the sky because he made them stay there. 
It's astounding. It's awe-inspiring. He is the sustainer of life, and he became dependent upon the thing he created. He allowed himself to enter into it and to need to breathe and to need to drink water, and to need to eat food, and to grow tired and weary. We see that in Jesus' ministry, right? He grows, he fasts for 40 days, and then the greatest understatement in the Gospels, perhaps, Jesus was hungry. He literally didn't eat food up to the point of where human beings can't survive any longer without it. In his absolute weakness, endured temptation from the enemy, take matters into his own hands and thwart God's plans and take up a new way, he overcomes that temptation and then the angels come and minister to him and, and he eats because he feels weak and tired and hungry. All these things are realities for Jesus in his humanity, this dependent kind of existence. Now, let me make sure that I explain something here. When I say that dependence for Jesus represents weakness, I don't want you to hear that you needing to depend on another person represents weakness. I mean, in a way it does, but that's the kind of weakness we're supposed to have. It's the kind of weakness you and I are supposed to have. We should need to depend on one another. And that kind of weakness is appropriate and it's good. So don't go through life thinking I should never depend on anyone. That's weakness. You should. Because by the way, that's what shows you the goodness of God, that you need others. Right? One way that you see the goodness of God. But for Jesus, the one who sustains everything to take up the kind of weakness that is dependence is like mind-shattering. Right? That's not a kind of existence that a divine being needs to take up. It's, it's part and parcel to the definition of the divine that they need nothing from things that are created. They are uncreated, right, and need nothing. That's, their independence is part of their divine quality. So when Jesus becomes human and takes up this kind of weakness that is seen in dependence, it's absolutely earth-shattering. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, we see this. Jesus says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now, if you've read, you know, if you've been in the church a while, you've probably heard that and Jesus is gonna usher in a new heaven and a new earth. But what I want you to get is in his second coming, he's giving demonstration to the fact that he's been the one sustaining the existence of the created order all along because when he's done with it, then he can roll it up and recreate it and bring a new heaven and a new earth. When he ceases to sustain it, it passes away, and he brings in anew. Do you see what I'm getting at? All right. So we've seen then that Jesus is the creator of life and yet took up death. And then secondly, we've seen that Jesus is the sustainer of life, and yet he took up the weakness of dependence. So what are the implications for us? And I already told you up front that the implication, at least one of them, the one I want us to focus on today, is that we need humility. Go back to Philippians chapter two. Remember, you don't have to flip back there, but just remember back to Philippians chapter two. Why was Paul spending time talking about the absolute humility of Jesus in taking the form of a certain, the exact likeness of a human in being born? Why was he doing that? Because he was trying to say to the Philippians, you need to humble yourselves toward one another. You need to be gracious and self-sacrificing and loving and count one another more important than yourselves, right? Which is a pretty good definition of humility. A person who thinks about others before they think about themselves. And he's arguing for that and he's, he's imploring them. And so what he's saying, what Paul's getting at is, if you want to be humble, then you need to understand the humility of the incarnation, 
You need to understand this great mystery, this great miracle that is Jesus not just staying divine, staying divine, but taking up humanity and then walking in that humanity into eternity future. So two observations about how does that work. Okay, you might say, well, Trent, that's great. I get it. I'll go back and read Philippians 2 a few times, and maybe that will really help me as I, as I ponder that and think about that. And, and it will. You should do that. But can I give you two observations about how this humility then kind of roots itself in you, two understandings about this text that will help you. Number one is that I want you to recognize that you don't just have a request to be humble. You have a command to be humble. That's an important distinction to to acknowledge. He's not saying, hey, Jesus was humble, so it'd be a good idea for you to be humble too. He's saying Jesus was humble, therefore, because of what he did, you too do this. He doesn't say, he doesn't say if you want to do it. He doesn't say if it sounds like a good idea, do it. He says you must do this. And there's a a command nature. He says, you know, take this up, this, this, uh, this nature that is yours in Christ Jesus. Take it up. And so he's saying you have a command to take up humility. And I just want to encourage you in that it's good for us. I mean, we live in a day and age where we really do love our independence and we really do tend to think of ourselves kind of as, as you know, our individual freedoms as the most important thing that we possess. And I just, I want to tell you, in some ways, there's some good to that, but there's also significant weakness to that. And one of the greatest weaknesses is the Bible doesn't really concern itself with our individual liberties all that much. The Bible doesn't spend a whole lot of time thinking about what you and I are free to do uh, because we want to do it and because no one should be able to infringe upon our rights. The Bible spends a lot of time talking about laying down your rights to serve others because that's what Jesus did. Spends a lot of time saying you have a right to be separated from God for eternity, but because of what Christ has done, you've been reconciled to him and you didn't do anything to earn that. It spends a lot less time concerned about individual liberties and a lot more time. I'm not, I'm not down on individual liberties. I'm glad we have them, okay? But the Bible spends a lot more time thinking about how do you become a person of self-sacrifice and humility that serves others and lays down your rights as Jesus laid down his and one of the difficulties for some of us in, in our mindset, I would say for me, is that I can slip into this way of thinking about, you know, sort of my personal individual rights and freedoms. And so when I encounter a command, it becomes harder for me to understand that commands are commands, not suggestions. There are certain cultures, I think, where commands are, are like taken as, oh, yes, commands, I understand commands. I don't know that we understand commands all that well. Some of you who served in the military probably understand them very well. Right, and some of us not so much. Yeah. <laughs> right, the, the, a command is to be what? Obeyed, right? And when Jesus gives a command, when the scriptures give a command, it's, it's to be obeyed. And we shouldn't look for ways around that. So we have a command to obedience, or a command to humility, sorry, forgive me. Command to humility. And the second thing though, is we don't just have a command. Because if we had a command, but in our weakness, what are our chances of obeying that, right? It's pretty tough. But the second thing we have is we have in Jesus the power to obey that command towards humanity. So he empowers us because that person, that one who being in very form and very nature God took on the very nature of humanity and then humbled himself and became obedient to death on a cross, that one now lives and dwells within us. And so we have two sources of power, by the way. We have the example of his life and death 
in front of us that we can look to again and again and again. We have the example that we can follow so we know what it looks like. We don't have to wonder. What, what does humility look like? No, we have in front of us the example that we need. But we have more than just an example. We have a command, we have an example, and then we have an indwelling power and that he's placed his spirit within us. So do you know that that family member that you need to humble yourself toward over this Christmas holiday, whoever that is, I know they're in your mind, I can see it in your eyes. Whoever that person is, I don't want you to think between now and then, I've got to figure out how to be humble towards this person. What you need is already in you because the Spirit of God, if you are in Christ, the Spirit of God is in you and he will guide you and show you and empower you to lower yourself, to humble yourself. He will give you what you need. So all you need do now is begin to pray and say, show me and give me power and I'll wait on you. And as you show me, I'll act. And then when he shows you, act. When he shows you a practical way to serve someone in your family, you know you need to serve, just go and do it. Go and do it at, at first, you know, we talk with my kids all the time. Obey the first time, right? Not the third time I say it, obey the first time. And we are working on that, right? We want you to hear it and do it, and then blessing will follow, right? I think the same is true. When you hear it, obey it. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to go, was that really you, Lord? I'm not sure, because that seems like a bit much. You are going to say that at some point in prayer. If it's moving you towards humility, towards someone in your family, I've already prayed for you. It is the Lord. You obey. First time. Step forward. So that's been my... It, it is my prayer for you. It will continue to be my prayer. And for me, by the way. And for me. So, look, as we ponder the incarnation, we take up humility. Because Jesus, our King, fully human, fully divine, took on the weakness of humanity while letting go of none of the power of divinity. Let's pray and let's worship him together.